Hello, and welcome to A History of Electronic Music, Part 18. Welcome to the show. My name is Paul Sheiky, and this time I'm going to be talking about sampling. Uh, but before that, I just want to do a little advert for something else I've done recently. Um, I've created a periodic table of musical genres, and there's a large electronic section in the middle, because that's the only category that has enough genres to fill that large middle section. Uh, but you can take a look at that, if you like, um, at triptreeproductions.co.uk slash images.html. And you can also buy posters of it on zazzle.com, where there's also a, more of an explanation as to why certain genres are where they are and how they correspond to the real elements. Uh, but now on with the show. There's kind of two types of sampling, really. Um, there's the found sound type, as we've kind of already covered in music concrete and tape music, where real world sounds are used. And then there's the more modern definition, where other people's music is used as a sound source and used in a different context. And this first piece I'm going to play kind of straddles both, in that it is an avant-garde tape piece from the early 60s, but it does use a piece of pop music from the time as its sound source. Uh, this is a track by James Tenney called Collage Number One. Piece by James Tenney called Collage Number no. One Blue Suede, obviously taking Elvis Presley's Blue Suede Shoes um, as the main sound source, and an early example of uh, changing the context of pre recorded music. Uh, but of course, we've heard that kind of thing in the previous episode of this podcast. For instance, we've heard Wagner used by Vladimir Uzachevsky and a bit of Madame Butterfly used by Pauline Oliveros. But even before them, both John Cage and Pierre Schaeffer experimented with pre-recorded vinyl records as a sound source for their music. But it wasn't until the early 70s that vinyl really came of age. And it wasn't in an experimental electronic studio, but on the streets of the Bronx in New York. At the age of 12, Clive Campbell moved with his family from Kingston, Jamaica to the Bronx. Always surrounded by music of all kinds growing up, he eventually managed to borrow his dad's sound system after he figured out how to make it louder and trounce his competition in the volume wars. Still in high school, he was regularly DJing at house parties in the early 70s and also keeping physically fit by running track, pushing weights and playing basketball, so much so that he earned the nickname Hercules. However, he wasn't too keen on it, so he shortened it to Herc, and after adding the name of a cigarettes brand that he'd seen a James Bond-style advert for, Clive Campbell became DJ Cool Herc. Noticing that the dancers loved the rhythm-only sections of the funk records he played, the breakdowns, he started putting these back-to-back -back in what he called a merry-go-round. According to Wikipedia, the earliest known merry-go-round involved playing James Brown's Give It Up or Turn It A Loose, then switching from its break into the break from Bongo Rock by the Incredible Bongo Band, and then into the break from The Mexican by English rock band Babe Ruth. I've had a go of recreating it just for fun. I can't say it's exactly as it would have been at the time, uh, but it's just an example of a possibility of what one of DJ Coolherx's merry-go-rounds might have sounded like. Here it is. Hey, stop the beat. 
one of DJ Cool Herx's possible merry-go-round soundalikes. Realising that if he had two copies of the same record, he could extend the same break by switching back and forth between two decks, he reinvented record decks as a kind of sampler. When linked with his vocal explanations on the mic, such as This is the joint, Herc beat on the point, he developed the blueprint for what came to be called hip-hop music. But others were to take his ideas and refine them further. Always interested in the technical aspects of DJing and the electronics behind it, Joseph Sadler, who would become known as Grandmaster Flash, wanted to turn beat-making and crowd-rocking into a science. Jeff Chang explains more in his book Can't Stop, Won't Stop. Herc, Flash felt, was sloppy. The break went around, but it never came back on beat because Herc was dropping the needle all over the place. Flash saw Pete DJ Jones seamlessly extending disco records by mixing two copies of the same record and realised he could apply the same technique to the music he really loved, the breaks Herc was spinning. Flash wanted to lift these slices of recorded time out of the progression of time and re-enclose a song's break in a perfect new loop. He considered Jones's simple circuit, begin break on record 1, cue record 2 on the headphone, end break 1, begin break 2, re-cue break 1. Then he understood that each record's rhythm had its own circumference to trace, that the break could be measured from point to point, and he developed a theory based on sectioning off the record like a clock. This was the breakthrough, he says. I came up with the quick mix theory, which was like cutting, the backspin and the double back. However, when he first tried it, the crowd stopped dancing and watched him instead, trying to figure out exactly what he was doing. This he didn't like as he was a shy kid and liable to make mistakes if he was watched. So for future parties, he got some friends to keep the crowd dancing by rapping into the mic. The rough and ready group eventually became known as Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Here's a little clip of them in action from 1978 when they were still called Grandmaster Flash and the Furious 4 MCs. Grandmaster Flash and the Furious 4 MCs, uh, real hip-hop from 1978, and that's from a mixtape from uh, Jackson Projects Jam. Because jams were often recorded and distributed in this way and could often be heard playing in a yellow taxi cab, apparently. Sometime during 1978, the culture and music acquired the name hip-hop when Flash and his crew threw a farewell party for a friend of theirs, Billy, who was joining the army, as Busy B. Starsky explains. And um, Cowboy always kept saying, we shouting out, Billy, this is for Billy. You're going to the army, hip, hop, and don't stop. You know, and left, right, hip, hop, hip, hop, don't stop, Billy. You know, so every 20 minutes during the music playing, flash playing, Cowboy would say this. Busy B. Starsky explaining the origins of the term hip-hop, and that's a clip from YouTube. You can watch the whole interview there if you like. Um, but by this point, hip-hop had achieved a certain amount of interest from independent record labels. And Flash and his MCs were at the top of their signing wish list. But Flash wasn't interested, as no one really felt that hip-hop could be put onto a record, as it seemed more of an event and a culture, and not just a musical style. So it was left to three outsiders, who'd never MC'd at a jam before, to record the first hip-hop record. Taking the bass line from the big disco hit of that summer, Good Times by Chic, they recreated in a studio what they'd been listening to at jams. The result, Rapper's Delight, brought the idea of sampling to a larger audience than ever before. (laughs) 
to the hip hop, the hip, the hip to the hip, hip hop. You don't stop the rockin' to the bang bang boogie. Say up, jump the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie to beat. Now what you hear is not a test. I'm rapping to the beat, and me, the groove, and my friends are gonna try to move your feet. Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang from 1979 on Sugar Hill Records. As hip-hop DJs were developing their skills in the late 70s, various synthesizer manufacturers were looking for ways to accurately recreate real instrument sounds using their technology. The invention of the microprocessor meant that analogue sampling technology, such as the tape-loop-based Mellotron, could be replaced by a digital equivalent. 1976 saw the birth of the first commercially available digital sampler, the Computer Music Melodeon, which could take 12-bit samples up to a sample rate of 22 kHz and also receive control information from analogue synths such as the ARP 2600. In this clip from 1980, its designer, Harry Mendel, explains the basic principles of digital sampling. The process is something like a digital recording. Now I use the same type of circuitry to take sound and convert it to a stream of numbers. But instead of just storing them as you would in a digital record, it's now input to a computer program which can process those numbers just like it could process a payroll or any other type of scientific problem or what have you. So those numbers are then taken and stored in a computer's memory. When I hit a key, the computer processes those numbers. It can change their frequency to uh, whatever pitch I indicate. It starts the uh, signal at the beginning of the attack whenever I hit a key. It'll stop when I release it. So it reacts to the keyboard and takes those numbers and processes them uh, in accordance to what I'm playing. Uh, Those numbers then go into another circuit which take them and convert them back into uh, sound. If you'd like to listen to that interview in full, it's available on SoundCloud and there's a link to it from Wikipedia, from the page for Computer Music Melodeon. Um, The first person to buy a Computer Music Melodeon was Stevie Wonder, who incidentally also bought the first ever Emu emulator and the second ever Lin LM1 sample-based drum machine. Wonder was the first person to use a digital sampler on a commercial release by using the Computer Music Melodeon to make the birds play a melody of his choice on his 1979 album, Journey Through the Secret Life of Plants. It's the piece of music you just heard playing in the background. This is a track called The First Garden. Listen to the bird sounds especially. Wonder, the first garden from 1979. However, with a price tag of around $20,000, digital sampling was out of the reach of the ghetto kids who were continuing to develop hip-hop. So vinyl remained their instrument of choice, and they continued to innovate. Here, Grand Wizard Theodore talks about the birth of the scratch, followed by an example of his work. This one particular day when I came home from school, I, you know, I usually go home and practice. And I was playing music a little bit too loud. And my mom's came and banged on the door, boom, 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 boom. If you don't cut that music down, you're going to have to cut it off. So while she was in the doorway, you know, screaming at me, I was still holding the record and rubbing the record back and forth. When she left, I was like, hmm, that was like, that's a, that's a pretty good idea. So when she left, I experimented with it, you know, a couple of months, a couple of weeks, different records. And then when I was ready, we gave a party, and that's when I first introduced the scratch. Grand Wizard Theodore, first of all speaking in the documentary Scratch, and then uh, Military Cut, uh, which is from the soundtrack to the 1983 film Wild Style, and that was him scratching. 
But it was Grandmaster Flash who was still at the forefront of record manipulation. And there's no better example of his skills than his classic 1981 release, The Adventures of Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel. Here's a big chunk of it. You see, you see, you see, you see, you see, you see, you see. One for the trouble, two for the time. Come on, girls, let's rock that. Five, five, Freddy told me everybody's side. DJ is spinning, I said, my, my. Flash is back, Flash is back. Flash is fast, flash is cool, Francois is far, flash ain't no dude. He say one for the trouble, two for the time. Come on, girls, let's rock that. Master Flash on his own without the Furious Five uh, and his adventures on the Wheels of Steel from 1981 and that's performed live using three turntables and not uh, tape spliced in the studio. But back in the digital realm, the instrument that really spearheaded the digital sampling revolution of the early 80s was getting a lot of publicity. The first commercially available digital workstation, combining synthesis, sampling and sequencer functions, the Fairlight Computer Musical Instrument, was developed in Australia and named after a Sydney Harbour hydrofoil. In this quite long clip, co-creator Peter Vogel explains some of its functions and demonstrates its innovative light pen interface. Now, for my money, the star of the show was this the Fairlight Computer Musical Instrument. It's uh, $26,000 worth of electronic wizardry that's been developed over the last five years by Kim Ryrie and Peter Vogel. Peter, show us the amazing things it can do. Well, here we're using a computer to actually generate the sounds that we hear. So instead of having vibrating strings or air columns like in conventional instruments, the computer generates the sound that we want. And the, the important thing is the ease with which the musician can define to the computer this is the sort of sound I want, please make it for me. Now, to make that easy, we've created a light pen system, which is this device here, that allows you to draw directly onto this television screen the harmonic curves of right. the sound. Now, this is the picture of a sound. That's what the sound looks like to the computer, so that we know what, what sound the computer's thinking about. Would you like to show us what sound that well, is? Well, this particular spectrum sounds like this. Well, now, how does a composer working with the CMI, the Fairlight, change that? Well, I might select to change one of these harmonics. So I've taken the fifth harmonic here, and I'm just working on that curve on its own, drawing a new one. So now that curve swells up towards the end there, 
and I'll make the tenth harmonic do a similar sort of thing. Now when I hit the compute command here, the computer's now thinking about the curves I've drawn here and calculating the sound that, if fed into a spectrum analyzer, would look like that, and that'll sound a bit different. You can hear the higher harmonics growing in the duration of the sound. And that's the kind of experimentation that a composer would engage in. But if he wanted a particular sound, the sound of a church bell or a trumpet or a violin, what does he do? Well, in those circumstances, we can simply plug a microphone into the machine and tell it, OK, computer, here's a sample of the sound that I want. See what you can do with it. So, for example, with the human voice, we can say, blah. And there's a picture of that blah. Right, that so that's, that's the trace of that. And you can then put that through the, the unit. Blah. 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 That's rather cute, isn't it? Some of the Fairlight in action from 1980. Although the Fairlight CMI Series 2 could only sample at 8-bit and up to 24 kHz, it had 8-note polyphony, making it a truly playable instrument for the professional musician, though the hefty price tag put it out of the reach of all but the most well-established artists and producers. However, digital sampling was to meet hip-hop, when Tommy Boy Records paired one of the godfathers of hip-hop, African Barbata, with producers Arthur Baker and John Roby. Bambata subsequently said, I wanted to be the first black electronic group, some funky mechanical crazy shit with no band, just electronic instruments. Defining the sound of electro, Planet Rock borrowed, but didn't sample, elements from Kraftwerk's Trans Europe Express and Numbers. The noticeable sampled part of the tune is actually the orchestra hit, which is one of the Fairlight's preset sounds. Here's a little bit of it, but not too much, as I'm going to play more of it next time, because that's when I'm talking about Electro. It's time to chase your dreams, love out the seats, make your body slow, socialize, get down, let your soul lead the way. A living dream, love the life you live. Come play the game. Our world is free. Do what you want, but scream. We know a place where the nights are hot. It is a house of folk, females and males, both young and old. Called the disco, the DJ plays your favorite. Blast, takes you back to the past Music's magic Oof, hump, hump, bump, get pumped with some class Africa Bambata and the Soul Sonic Force Planet Rock from 1982 Sticking with producer Arthur Baker briefly, I just wanted to play you something he produced in late 1982 for British band Freeze, because it's a good example of the first thing you do when you get a sampler. Record your own voice and mess about with it on the keyboard. This is a sampler solo from the end of their 1983 hit, I.O.U. I.O.U. from 1983. Back in the world of hip-hop, cultural magpie Malcolm McLaren was planning an album using traditional music as its base and to be called Folk Dances of the World. Budget limitations meant a round-the-world trip was restricted to South Africa and New York, where the cultural mix meant the music of the world came to you. 
Inspired after attending an Africa by Barter block party, he decided to do his own version of this new music and enlisted super producer Trevor Horn to help him. Horn had already shown an interest in sample manipulation and electronic music as part of the Buggles. For instance, in this little intro to the track Living in the Plastic Age. Part of Living in the Plastic Age from the album The Age of Plastic from 1980, The Buggles. Together, McLaren and Horn took a little bit of this. A little bit of this. And mixed it with some of this. The first old gent will march to the right, around the outside, around the outside. Buffalo boy, go around the outside, balance to your corner. And came up with the first British hip hop record. McLaren Buffalo Gals uh, from the album that was eventually called Duck Rock and that's from 1982. 82 also saw the Fairlight used by British art rock superstars Kate Bush and Peter Gabriel. Bush produced most of her album The Dreaming using one and Gabriel liked it so much he set up a company to distribute them in the UK. Here's examples of the more subtle way they were using sampling technology at this time. Bye. Goodbye. 
Peter Gabriel from his 1982 album, Peter Gabriel. That was Lay Your Hands On Me. And before that was All The Love by Kate Bush from The Dreaming, again from 1982. But over in the US too, established stars had picked up on the potential of the new instrument. Jazz innovator Herbie Hancock also picked up on the new electro sound and combined it with his style on the album Future Shock. The obvious track to play off that is Rocket, but as I'll probably play that next time when I'm doing Electro, I've got to play you Auto Drive instead, as it also features some more obvious samples. Drive by Herbie Hancock from his 1983 album Future Shock. But even by this time, digital samplers were far beyond the means of most, so experimentation with sampling for many was still a process of playing with vinyl or cutting and splicing tape. The latter method was used when Steve Stein, aka Steinsky, worked with his music producer friend Doug Double D DeFranco to remix Play That Beat Mr. DJ by Globe and Wizkid for a competition run by Tommy Boy Records. Rather than taking a conventional approach, they decided to reference the roots of hip-hop by taking parts of other people's music and transforming them by changing the context. Initially using just the old funk records that characterised early hip-hop, they soon spread their net wider until, as Steinsky puts it, it became this increasing series of left turns where all of a sudden it was like, oh yeah, right man, great, this is like we can put Humphrey Bogart over this and I have this seance record that we can use. Again, that's a clip from the film Scratch. The eclectic mix they came up with pioneered a new style, sometimes called cut-up, and it also won them the competition. Here's some of it. Heel toe, heel toe, heel toe, heel toe. Hop forward, hop back, hop, hop, hop. Play it for her, play it for me. Play it for her, play it for me. Play it. 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 
is red hot. New York is red hot. New York is red hot. Double D and Steinsky, the payoff mix, also often known as Lesson One from 1983 and produced in New York. But on the opposite side of America, in San Francisco, another band were exploring the flip side of Cut Up. Dropping conventional musical elements, Negative Land instead created noise collages from a variety of pre-recorded sources, but most notably vocal snippets from advertisements. Similar in style to John Cage's The Williams Mix, this is from their 1983 album, which took three years to make, a big 10-8 place. We'd have a swimming pool and a dishwasher and clothes washers and fryers and air conditioning. Assure your family's safe, secure, secure comfort. But hurry, but hurry, but hurry, but hurry. The second thing that happens is that the butcher loses control. An extract from Negative Land's 1983 album, A Big 10-8 Place. That was A Big 10-8 Place Part 1. Um, but also in the avant-garde side of things, Swiss-American Christian Markley had chosen the turntable as his instrument of choice. Ever since using a skipping record as a replacement for a drummer in a punk band he was in in 1979, he'd been fascinated with the physicality of vinyl and its ticks, pops and crackles, seeing them as enhancements. Pushing the turntable as instrument idea further than hip-hop DJs had hitherto done, including wearing one around his neck like a guitar, he primarily concentrated on live performances in the early 80s. His first solo release in 1985 had a rather unusual press release. This unconventional record is designed to be sold without a jacket, nor even a sleeve. You do not have to worry about getting the record scratched, or about getting dust or fingerprints on its surface. On the contrary, the damages will in time enhance the recording. Here's a clip from that release, which is called Record Without a Cover. Christian Marclay's 1985 release record without a cover and as you can tell he generally only used records from old thrift stores and charity shops um, so I'm sure there's a bit of Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass in there you get that in every single charity shop at least in the UK anyway anyway um, back to the world of the Fairlight and 1983 saw Trevor Horn producing an album for a band he'd previously been lead vocalist for yes 
During the production sessions, some of the session musicians and programmers brought in to help decided to sample a discarded drum loop in its entirety and loop it with a Fairlight sequencer, thus hinting at the direction hip-hop will go in the future. Adding some random sounds over the top, the piece developed into a remix of Owner of a Lonely Heart that sounds quite a bit like the group the gathered musicians were about to form. That was, yes, and Owner of the Lonely Heart, the extended remix from the album 90125, I think you get it on the CD version perhaps, um, from 1983. Seeing potential in the idea of a sample-based group, Horn encouraged the musicians Gary Langan, Anne Dudley and JJ Jexelik to continue experimenting, as the Fairlight had for the first time made it possible to jam with samples, something that couldn't really be done in the tape splicing days. At the same time, Horn was thinking of starting his own record label. Realising that a lack of image has been partly responsible for the Buggles' his lack of success, he teamed up with music journalist Paul Morley, who was tasked with providing concepts, art direction and marketing ideas. Excited by the possibilities of sample-based music, Paul wanted to join the group, even though he could contribute little musically. As Anne Dudley has said, his talents lay elsewhere. Paul, to his credit, was the entire creator of all the titles, the artwork, the manifestos. He gave us an identity. None of us had really intended to be a band, but Paul got very excited by it and swept us along with his enthusiasm. Without him, we wouldn't have existed. We would have been a bunch of session musicians. He gave us the name, and we thought we ought to live up to it because it was so good. The name was The Art of Noise, and it came from the same place as the name chosen for the record label, as Simon Reynolds has written in Rip It Up and Start Again. Zhang Tum Tum was a phrase Morley had found in Luigi Rosolo's The Art of Noises. In this 1913 manifesto for a futurist music, Rosolo quoted a letter by the movement's leader, Marinetti, which poetically used onomatopoeia to describe a battle during the Balkan Wars. Zhang Tom Tum, as Marinetti rendered it, evoked the sound of Bulgarian siege cannons bombarding the Ottoman Turks. The military connotations of Zhang Tum Tum appealed to Morley's sense of the label as declaring war on a new pop gone wrong. In this martial spirit, the first Zhang Tum Tum release was into battle with the art of noise. Here's some of it. I lied actually, that wasn't some of it, that was actually all of it. That was a track called Battle from the first uh, Art of Noise release, Into Battle, uh, from 1983. And that does sound particularly lo-fi, because obviously the Fairlight could still only sample at 8-bit. But some of the other restrictions of the instrument were to help define the early sound of the Art of Noise. Talking about the 1.2 second maximum sample time, Anne Dudley has said... We had to be incredibly ingenious to make this thing work. I had to think of ways of using short sounds all the time. That's why the Art of Noise's music is so stabby. But what really stands out about their early work is the number of musical ideas they got into their pieces and the fun they seem to have with the new instrument. 
For instance, listen to the number of sounds and different musical elements in this short extract from Close to the Edit. Extract from Close to the Edit from 1983 and the album Who's Afraid of the Art of Noise. But by this time, the Fairlight wasn't the only sampling workstation in town. Developed from most of the 70s, the Synclavier 2 by New England Digital was a powerful FM synthesizer with an unheard of 64 voice polyphony. Launched in 1979 and proving popular amongst the established acts that could afford it, the early 80s saw it lose ground to the Fairlight, as developer Sidney Alonso explains. They would show up at AES shows and they'd say, well, let's draw a picture of a Volkswagen on the screen and then we'll play that wave. And lo and behold, the public bought it. So all of a sudden, the idea was that we want to do sampling. And this was a very strong market force, so we were forced to develop the sampling unit. What they came up with surpassed the Fairlight in terms of quality, with 16-bit sampling up to a sample rate of 100Hz, which led to a cleaner, harder and perhaps colder sound. Judge for herself with these two clips that were produced almost entirely on a synclavier.
Kraftwerk. The telephone call from 1986's Electric Cafe, which was re-released then as Technopop. And before that, you heard Frank Zappa, Massaggio Galore, from his 1986 album as well, uh, Jazz from Hell, which was uh, produced almost entirely on a synclavier. But the synclavier's price tag was still a barrier to most, and it wasn't until the launch of two instruments in 1984 that the sampler market could really take off. Saving money and adding warmth by using analogue filters instead of digital, the Ensonic Mirage and Emu Emulator 2 were sold at a fraction of the cost of the Fairlight and Synclavier. The Emulator 2 proved particularly popular and was used by the likes of Depeche Mode, New Order and the Pet Shop Boys who used only that to make their first single, West End Girls. Boys, West End Girls from 1985 and their first album, Please. Uh, now, I'm going to dedicate the rest of the show to the art of noise, as they're the group I most associate with sampling, and they made perhaps the most creative use of the sampler, at least in its early years. Despite the relative success of the first album, Who's Afraid of the Art of Noise, things were not going well within the band. The musicians, Langan, Dudley and Jexalik, felt that Horns and Morley's musical contributions didn't amount to much, so the band split. Moving to China Records, The Art of Noise continued as a three-piece, and freed from Morley's art direction, which some felt was pretentious, the band started to move in a more commercial direction. That said, they still sounded like nothing else out there at the time, even when doing cover versions of old TV detective shows theme tunes, such as Peter Gunn and later on Dragnet. This next track from 1986 was perhaps a natural collaboration as it was with a character who owes a great deal of his uniqueness to digital sampling technology, Max Headroom. This is Paranoia. How do I get this lily? We'll count those bars on the window. One, two, three, sleep. of Noise featuring Max Headroom, Paranoia from 1986 and the album Invisible Silence. The next year saw the departure of Gary Langan, but Jexalik and Dudley continued as a duo and released their next album, In No Sense, Nonsense. 
The main development was the increasing use of classical orchestration. But I don't really have to say much about that album, as they conveniently supplied a summary in the form of the B-side to the Dragnet single. Uh, this is called Act and Art. Art, and that was the B-side to the Dragnet single, but I got it from the compilation Influence, and that's from 1987. Though 1988 saw their biggest chart success so far, with their version of Prince's Kiss featuring Tom Jones on vocals, their next album, Below the Waste, failed to chart. Additionally, Dudley and Jexalik seem to be pulling in different directions. Dudley more towards a ambient melodic classical sound, and Jexalik a more rhythmic rock sound. So it was that in 1990 they decided to disband the art of noise. But that wasn't the end of the story. The late 90s saw original art of noise members Trevor Horn, Paul Morley and Anne Dudley together again and working on a concept album about Claude Debussy. Joined by Lowell Cream of 10cc fame, they produced an album called Balance, Music for the Eye, under the name The Image of a Group. Here's a short extract from part three, which is called Blue Murder. And it sounds a little bit like the early art of noise. Will you accept some samples of our work? Blue Murder by the image of a group, from, and I've taken that from the, again, the Influence compilation that's released in 2010. However, a record release from the image of a group was not to be, as an agreement was reached on the use of the art of noise name, and the seduction of Claude Debussy became their fifth album release. Owing much more to Anne Dudley's classical sensibilities than the sampledelic past of the group, the album mixes opera, drum and bass, hip-hop and a voiceover by John Hurt. I'm going to leave you with the only single released from the album, albeit in a slightly different version, and in true cut-up style I've mixed it with another track that featured on a release of outtakes from the album's sessions that they released afterwards called Reduction. The first is most typical of their new sound, but the second has some more nods to the history of the group and both of them are melded together by a rap by Rakim so it sort of brings us nicely back to hip hop too as well um, next time I'll be talking about electro and I will go back to look at hip hop and sampling at some point as well because there's loads of late 80s hip hop that I really love um, but for now I'm going to leave you with Metaforce uh, going into New York, London, Paris Spleen, The Art of Noise from 1999 goodbye
vision causing my metabolism to climb And then I splatter my wisdom in the design I leave time suspended and break gravity's law Metaphors to the world ain't spinning no more And from there I put sounds to hear No automere, sort of rare Something you will compare to Baudelaire Rock him, then commits the intricate Deep in the lady as a man can get into it And keep it wet until the sweat begin to drip And then the instrument is intimate Ideas I suggest are